are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Let me show you a very simple sermon tonight on revival, or clearing the way for revival. If you need a text, Psalm 85, 6, is really a prayer. Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? One evangelist said in the text you have the revival prayer. Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Then he said in the text you have the revival people. Will thou not revive us? Again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. Somebody said revival has nothing to do with the unsaved. It has everything to do with the saved. It's saved people getting thoroughly right with God, getting excited, getting revived. You can't revive a dead person. You can only revive somebody who's alive. Evangelism, which always springs from revival, has to do with winning the lost to Christ. But there's a difference between evangelism and revival. But you have in the text not only the revival prayer and the revival people, but you have the revival product. Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Joy is a product of revival. Christians getting excited, being happy. I think most of us who've read about great revivals long to experience a revival in our lifetime. I've read about the great evangelical awakenings, and I read when they had the revival in Wales that they had to re-educate the mules. I've read that those miners that drove the mules cursed so badly that when they got converted and quit cursing, the mules didn't know where to go or stop or gee ha They had to re-educate the mules. I've never been in a revival like that. I remember Billy Sunday went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and stayed three months, had 48,000 conversions in three months. One church, as a result of that revival meeting, got 1,000 new members for baptism, and the building would only seat 250. And they was in a, had a dilemma. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to put the 1,000 new members they got out of the Billy Sunday revival. I read that during that three-month revival, there were 600 less people in the jails of Allegheny County than there had been the same three-month period the preceding year. What a revival. I read about those great revivals, and I long to experience that in my lifetime. I guess we go with ideas about revival. May I say, by way of introduction, revival is not an accident. But I think we wait for the accident of revival to occur that just perhaps me might be in the right place at the right time when the revival cloud moves over and bang, it'll just automatically happen. But it doesn't work like that. I read in a book written by a scholar, he said he was a scholar, and in his book he said revivals are spontaneous, we have nothing to do with them. Well, that's not true. If that's true, why was David praying, Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? If they just happen, if they just accidents, why was he praying that? Revivals are not accidents. They just accidentally happen. May I say, second, revival is not a miracle. I mean in the true sense of a miracle, that God sets aside the laws of nature and does something contrary to the laws of nature. It's not a miracle in that sense. A revival is a result of the proper use of constituted means. Now, let me say that again because I want you to get that. The revi- a revival is a proper use or the result of the proper use of constituted means. But even the use, a proper use of constituted means does not bring revival without God's blessings. Just like the proper use of constituted means will not bring a crop without God's blessings upon that crop. But to pray for revival and do nothing toward it means you'll never experience revival in your lifetime. Why no revival? Clearing the way for revival. All right, here's your sermon. Number one, no revival because of unbelief. And I'd like to drive that home because we're living in a day when men really believe that in this age and dispensation you cannot have revivals. 
I know some well-known Bible teachers in the country and well-known preachers who will say, we're living in the last days. This is the gleaning stage. Moody and Tory and Spurgeon and some of those fellows, they lived during the main harvest of souls, and we're living in the gleaning stage in this dispensation. And we can only expect a few saved here and there. And you're not going to have big revivals like you did in Moody's day or Finney's day or Tory's day. Did you know there was people who lived in Finney's day and Moody's day and Tory's day who believed the same thing while they were having revivals? While Finney was having revival up in the northeast part of this country, there was a group of theologians that met to discuss why you could not have revival in that part of the country. And while they're discussing why you couldn't do it, he was busy having a revival. If I believed that, I'd close my Bible and go home and quit. God's the same right now. He always has been. He hasn't changed one iota. Malachi 3, 6 says, I'm the Lord thy God. I change not. Therefore, your sons of Jacob are not consumed. And in the book of James, it says, All good and perfect gifts come down from the Father above, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God's the same. God's the same. The guy who says in this dispensation you can't have revival puts himself in a corner. Because when some church like this one gets excited and starts wanting souls and packs and jams a building and starts thinking of a new property and does what he says cannot be done, they've blown his theory out of the water. So rather than admit his Bible teaching is wrong, he attacks a church like this and says, well, they're doing it because they're giving away bubble gum or hamburgers or hot dogs. Well, so what? If I had Cadillacs, I'd get enough of them. I could give away and get folks to come to church and get saved. I'd give them a Cadillac. In fact, if you start giving away Cadillacs, I'll bring a crowd out here to your church. But they try to explain away the success of Dr. Howes and men like that. Well, he does it because, because, because. You see, what Dr. Howes has done is proven their theory or their Bible teaching wrong, so they have to attack the guy that's doing what they say can't be done. They have to explain away his ministry some way. So it puts them on the defense all the time. Unbelief. Unbelief. That's why no revival. You don't believe you can have one. But when you really believe you can have revival, you can have revival. I think it was Emerson said, they can conquer who believe they can. It was Henry Ford who said, if you think you can, you're right. If you think you can't, you're right again. You won't be able to. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And it was Paul in the Bible that wrote on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. If I had any, if I had any unbelief in my heart that you could build a church here at this place, I'd close my Bible now and apologize for coming out here, and I'd go home and never come back and preach again. If I felt like some of the preachers on the West Coast feel, I'd leave the West Coast. They say, you can't do it out here. Maybe in 15 more years I might get 200, and I'm looking at 2,000 standing across the street. Father, you say, in 15 more years, 200 more. I can't believe that kind of thinking. You can do as much as you think you can, but you'll never accomplish more. If you're afraid of yourself, there's little for you in the store. For fear comes from the inside first. It's there if you only knew it. And you can win, though you face the worst, if you believe that you can do it. Nobody ever did anything who didn't believe they could do it. Faith. Unbelief. fellow said to Spurgeon, I'm not having people saved in every service. Not as many folks saved as I think ought to be saved. And Spurgeon said, you don't expect people to get saved every time you preach, do you? And the fellow said, no. And Spurgeon said, that's the reason they're not saved every time you preach. Blessed is the man who expects nothing, for he shall not be disappointed. I hate these guys who are so dispensational. They say all the revivals are gone, all the blessings are gone, and we must hang on toward the end here and pray we don't lose two members next year. And don't tell me that. Don't tell Larry Chapel that. He's running 300 more than he was running last year. They told me Atlanta was the city or the graveyard of evangelists. That evangelists came and tried to have revivals and they failed, and you couldn't have revival in Atlanta. But I, I didn't know that until after we already had revival. It's a scientific impossibility for the bumblebee to fly. His body weight is too much for his wingspan. But the bumblebee never did read the science book. 
So he flies anyway. And I think Bible colleges and seminaries have done more to hurt people than they have to help people. Because a bunch of dead, dry, dusty professors that never want a soul to Christ, never baptize a convert, is up there telling young preachers why you can't do it. I closed the school down. That's what Deed said. Number two, no revival because of unconcern. No winning. No compassion. I remember when I went to the conference in 1961. And Dr. Howells preached a sermon on what is man that thou art mindful of him. And he preached and he preached. And I sat right back there. And as he preached, I breathed deeper and my chest seemed to feel so heavy. And I, I found myself puffing and whew, I thought I couldn't stand it. It felt like a rope tightening on my chest. And I thought to myself, I've never loved people like I love them. I've never felt toward people like I feel toward them now. And I left there, and when I'd read the obituary column in the newspaper, I would literally weep over people that I did not know. I would wonder if they were saved or lost. While I'm reading their names in the paper, they're in heaven or hell. They died yesterday or last night. And I'd literally weep as I held the newspaper in my hand and wonder if those people were in heaven or hell and wonder if anybody in Atlanta had ever taken the Bible to show them how to get saved. I worried about it. I wondered about it. I can't tell you the burden I had. Indifference is the dry rot of the church. That's why Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold. Because you're lukewarm, I'll spew out of my mouth. When I read that in Revelation 3, I said, Jesus, you don't mean that. You don't mean your other man be ice cold and lukewarm. Jesus said, yes, I want you hot or cold, don't want you lukewarm. Why? You mean your other man be against the Bible, against God, spit on the Bible, laugh at God, than to be a lukewarm Christian, come to church occasionally, give a dollar once in a while, pray when an emergency comes up, carry the Bible around like a good luck charm, just a lukewarm. Isn't that better than being ice cold? Jesus said, oh no, I wish you were hot or cold. I prefer that to lukewarmness. Why? Because lukewarm indifference has done more to harm Christianity than all the dope addicts and agnostics and infidels and modernists and rapists and murderers, whoever, just the Christian who can come in and be lukewarm. Be lukewarm. And Preston nicknamed Holy Ann because of her holy life. Could not read a word in any paper or magazine. But by a miracle, she could read the Bible, every word in it. And someone one day was reading the paper and it had the word Lord. Talked about a certain Lord in England, a Lord this in England, Lord so and so. And he knew the word Lord's in the Bible, so he wanted to see if Anne could read the word Lord in the newspaper. If she could read it in the Bible, she'll be able to read the newspaper. And so he held the newspaper up and said, Anne, can you read this word here? And she pointed that word and she said, Yes, that's Lord. But she said, I don't think it's my Lord. Because it doesn't make my heart burn when I read it. Isn't that strange? That comes out of an old book entitled Spiritual Secrets of Famous Christian. Holy Ann, Ann Preston, I can tell you all the stories from my life. How she got snowed in one day and couldn't get to church. And she just prayed, Lord, uh, open a way for me to get to church. And some horses got loose. And began to run around in Ann's front yard. And they ran back and forth from her house to the road and beat down a path as if you had shoveled it out. She said, thank you, Lord, and walked out the path into the road and on to church. And folks laughed at her. She had miracle after miracle happen in her life. She prayed for a dry well and water came to the well. And I can't tell you that. But the point I'm making is the Bible was not a dead book to Ann Preston. Prayer was not a dead thing to Dr. John R. Rice. He didn't just pray and go to sleep while he prayed. Dr. Rice sounded like a machine praying. He had called over hundreds and hundreds of names of people. He prayed for uh, scores of preachers and evangelists and missionaries by name. And then he asked me to pray. I said, I don't feel like praying. You prayed for everything. I don't think I want to pray. I was intimidated by his prayer life. He had prayed so fervently. I'm saying unconcerned. Unbelief, unconcern, just not caring whether people get saved or not. Really don't care if my friends die and go to hell, not having any burden about the laws. Unconcerned. That's why there's no revival. And by the way, indifference. 
is not the temptation of the young Christian. It's the temptation of the older Christian. I find all the young converts are still excited. It's the fellows who've been saved 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years. You go in these churches that has an old membership, people who've been saved 30 and 40 years, they sit there, they've concluded you can't do anything, and you couldn't move them with a stick of dynamite. A man went into an acid factory as a visitor. And a man said, well, let's be careful. I'll show you. And he showed him all through the acid factory. And he, he said, this stuff is strong. And he took a little, little acid and a little container and threw a piece of wood in it, and the wood just disappeared. And he said, the men must be extremely careful. They'll have a, a hand burned off in just a second or so. And the tourists said to the fellow showing through, I'll bet some people have, uh, have uh, suffered from bad injuries in here. He said, well, they have. Some have lost fingers. Some have lost a hand. Some have lost a foot. And the man said, and, and I'll bet it's the new people who come in. And he said, no, it's not the new people. He said, it's the old people who've been here a long time. And they get used to this acid, and they see it and get used to it, and they haven't been burned in years. And after a while, they start taking it for granted, and they get careless. And it's the old ones who get burned, not the new ones. And I found in churches, it's the people who've been saved a long time. If they're not careful, they'll get dry and dead and dusty and no concern and no compassion. And no revival because of unbelief. No revival because of unconcern. Number three, no revival because of unconfessed sins. You know, the Bible has to be properly divided. For instance, 1 John has five chapters, 105 verses. And you should know before you read one verse out of any, any in chapter of 1 John that all of it's written to believers. None of it's written to unbelievers. 1 John 5, 13 says, These things write we unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. If you take 1 John 1, 9 and, and tell a sinner, Confess your sins and God will forgive you and cleanse you, then you're telling a sinner the wrong thing. The Bible never says to a sinner, Confess your sins. The Bible says to the sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But the Bible says to the saved man, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you tell an unsaved man, confess your sins and God will save you, you just fix it so he can never get saved. Because there's not an unsaved man in the world that can remember all the sin he's ever committed. Tell that to a 70-year-old man. Let him try to remember 70 years of sinning and confess it. He's got a problem. He's talking now to believers. There's only one way for the believer to stay in fellowship with God, and that is in the words of Martin Luther, keep short accounts with God. Don't let sin pile up in your life. When you sin and you know you've sinned, it won't automatically go away. It won't disappear. It's like putting mud on the wall. It won't, time does not clean the mud from the wall. Some action has to be taken. And the action is we confess our sins. Not to the preacher, not to the evangelist, not to the deacons, not to the priest or pope. But we confess our sins to Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Harold Seitler walked into a service station lot on a Sunday morning early and he saw an older girl and her, and her younger brother. And her younger brother was dirty, grimy dirty. And he said... Son, how did you get so dirty so early in the morning? And his sister spoke up and said, Mister, he didn't get that dirty this morning. He went to bed like that last night. And the Christians in America did not get like they are since they got up this morning. They went to bed like that last night, and night before last, and night before that, and night before that. You know, you know, the failure on the part of Christians is not sinning. The failure on the part of Christians is not taking advantage of the provision that Jesus made for our sins. You're going to all sin. We're all going to mess up. 
That's not the failure. The failure is not taking advantage of the provisions that God made through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. And we go day after day, week after week, month after month, with unconfessed, unforgiven, uncleansed sins. And we're out of fellowship. We don't love God. We don't enjoy the singing. Something happens to us. No revival because of unconfessed sins. But if I confess my sins, He's faithful and just to forgive me and uh, cleanse me. Hey, that's something else. When I confess a sin, God does several things. Number one, he, for, he forgives me. Number two, He cleanses me. Number three, He blots it out. Number four, He forgets it. It's one thing. Let's say my little girl gets ready to go to Sunday school and she gets too near a mud hole and falls in the mud and she runs in with all the muddy clothes on and says to her mother, Please forgive me, mother. I didn't mean to fall in the mud. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And the mother says, Okay, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. But a mother does more than forgive her. She takes off those muddy clothes. She puts her in the tub, gives her another bath, puts on clean clothes, clean shoes, and clean ribbon in her hair, and fixes her back like she was before she fell in the mud hole. So when she gets to church, nobody will ever know she fell in the mud hole. Her mother forgave her and, and cleansed her. And when you confess the sin, no matter what the sin is, the moment you confess it, God forgives and cleanses it and blots it out and forgets it. But what happens is we go on with unconfessed sin in our life. We know it's there. We know it's there. We never confess it. D.L. Moody tried to have a revival meeting. He said, the first thing I want you to do is everybody to come forward and kneel and confess your sins. Don't confess to Moody said, let everybody here confess their sins. And one guy came to Moody and said, I don't know what my sins are. And Moody said, well, just kneel with the rest of us and guess that And Moody said he guessed them the very first time. Did you know I got an idea everybody could guess their sins the very first shot? Yeah. R.A. Torrey was on this coast at one time. At a great church out here at one time. R.A. Torrey said, I can give a prescription that will bring a revival to any church or any community in the world. Here it is. Let a few people, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is a prime essential. If this is not done, the rest I'm going to say will come to naught. Second, let them band themselves together in prayer groups and pray for revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. Third, let them put themselves at God's disposal for Him to use as He sees fit in the winning of others to Christ. That is all. I have given this prescription around the world. It has been taken by many churches and many communities. And in no instance has it ever failed, and it cannot fail. Did you hear that? Let a few Christians, and need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. Let me ask you, and don't answer it, are you thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly right with God at this minute? Do you harbor any inward, hidden secrets into the heart? Some attitude? Is there some outward sin, you've, something that's wrong in your life? Is there any sin you're harboring that you're trying to hide? Proverbs 28, 13 said, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. You may as well just open up. I have a feeling it's not when we confess our sins, we think we're telling God something he doesn't know. It's like the drunk lady who came forward in one of a, a, a Joe Boyd's revival meetings. She was drunk. She knelt to get saved. And Joe Boyd knelt by and started praying. And he prayed like this, Lord, we know this dear lady is drunk. And she said, Shh, don't tell him that. Don't tell him that. She thought God didn't know it. And Joe was telling on her. And I think we feel if we confess our sins, we're telling on ourselves. But God knows it anyway. You may as well just blurt it out. God already knows what's in your heart. No revival because of unbelief. No revival because of unconcern. No revival because of unconfessed sins. Number four, no revival because of uncontrolled lives. And I mean by this, Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. I've heard men say, clean your heart out and God will pour in more of the Holy Spirit. Two problems. Number one, your heart's not a receptacle. And number two, the Holy Spirit's not a substance like water in a jug. 
Paul Barney Clark, let's suppose he cleaned his heart out and God filled his heart full of the Holy Ghost and they took his heart out and put an artificial heart. What happened to the Holy Ghost? What about that gal there in Louisville, Kentucky? They, he cleaned his heart out and God filled it with the Holy Ghost and, they, and his heart fell and they cut it out and put another guy's heart in. Has he got to clean out this new heart now to get it full? And what happened to the full heart that they buried over beyond the graveyard? You're getting awful quiet on me tonight. Your heart's not a receptacle. It's a pump. It's a muscle. Holy Spirit's not a substance like water in a jug. He's a person. To be filled with the Holy Spirit to be con- is to be controlled by Him. And that's what I'm trying to say here. Uncontrolled eyes. Boy, that remedy ever. If the Holy Spirit controlled every believer's life all the time, we could turn the world upside down to Christ. Just let the Holy Spirit lead you. And you're giving, and you're singing, and you're witnessing, and everything. Just let him lead you. He'll lead you, right? Give you one more. Number five. No revival because of unpaid debts. Now, let me make sure you understand that I don't mean what you're thinking. I mean what Romans 1.14 says. Where Paul said, I'm a debtor. Both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He said, I'm a debtor, both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise. Carl Hatch. You know, you know Carl a lot. Carl's crazy. Carl's bubble's a little off-center. His elevator doesn't stop at all the floors. I thought I was crazy until I met Carl. He's crazy about soul winning. He was with Tom Malone up, up in Pontiac, Michigan. And they had us some apartments. And they said, you can't get in here. And no solicitors. And, and uh, Tom Jr. And, and Tom Malone and, and, and Carl Hedge went soul winning. And they said, well, we can't get in these apartments here. And Carl said, let me see if I can get in. He stood at the gate and yelled. Just began to call out a name. He said, Ralph! Hey, Ralph! Ralph! Finally, some lady stuck her head out the window and said, Who are you looking for? I said, Ralph, your husband, Ralph. She said, My husband's not Ralph, he's John. Well, he said, I meant John. I want to see John. She said, Wait just a minute, and I'll open the gate, and y'all can come in. And they spent the whole day in an apartment complex wanting souls to Christ. And I was just with a fellow less than a week ago, and he, about two weeks ago, and he said to me, well, you know, there are a lot of people, but you can't get in. You can't get in. I thought, if Carl Hatchett, he could get in. You can do a lot of things if you really want to do them. Carl Hatch came to Atlanta, Georgia, and he said, uh, let's go to the bank. I, you know, I want to do what he wanted to do, so he went to the bank. He, he said, I want to see the president. Lady said, what you need to see the president? Well, he said, I need to pay a debt. I've been owing a debt here a long time. It's bothering my conscience. I don't want to get off of my conscience. I want to pay my debt. Well, she said, all right. She thought it may be some large amount of money, I guess. So she called the president's office and said, the man, he wants to pay his debt. She said, who is it? She said, who are you? And he told him. She said, check the records. They couldn't find anything on the records. So come back. And the lady said, you don't owe anything. He said, yes, I do too, lady. Said, oh, more than you think I do. And when the president found out what I owe, he'll be glad to hear it, too. So she called the president back and said, This man vows he owes us some money. Said, We don't have a record. He vows he owes us some money. And he says, You'll be glad when he, when, he, when he pays you. The guy said, Send him in. We walked in this great big old office. Calls that I'm Carl Hatch. I'm going to pay my debt. Well, the man said, all right, what do you owe me? He said, well, sit down, I'll tell you. The man sat down. He opened the Bible to Romans chapter 1. I'm a debtor. Both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the unwise. I said, that includes you, don't he? He said, yeah. He said, I'm a debtor to tell you how to get saved. Sat in that bank president's office and led him to Christ under my nose. I'm sitting, I ain't believing what I'm seeing. The guy's crazy. I'm telling you, the guy's crazy. We were we were in the we were in the men's room in Atlanta, Georgia. At the airport, it's a big men's room. Can I tear this up? You do with it. Big men's room. On one side, they have all these little places where you can wash your hands, sinks, mirrors. On the other side, all these little stalls around the wall. You know. 
And I'm over there washing my face and freshening up, and I hear this rough voice over there where the stalls are. I said, read this while you're waiting. Check this out while you're waiting. Tell you how to go to heaven when you die. God bless you. And I walked around to see what was happening. There was Carl Hatton. Walking along and looking down, everywhere he saw two feet sticking down. He throwed a track under them and said, Read that while you're waiting. God bless. Somebody in there? Yeah, check it out. That'll tell you how to go to heaven when you die. Somebody, God bless you. Read that while you're waiting. Embarrassed me so bad I ran out of the airport. I said, I'm embarrassed. I got to get away from this guy. And I heard an old man say, Thank you. And I got to thinking about it when I got outside the airport. I wonder what God's thinking. And then I visualized Spurgeon and Moody up in heaven. And I visualized Wesley. And I saw John Wesley call Spurgeon over and say, Come here, Charles. I said, Look down yonder, Charles. I said, You see what I see, Charles? I said, I, I don't know. What do you see? He said, I see a man, a humpback man with cowboy boots on. Got men locked up in little boxes, throwing tracks at them. You see that? He said, Charles, why didn't we think of that when we was down there? And Charles said, we didn't have them little old boxes when we were down there. Carl Hatch came to Atlanta in a brand new 98 Oldsmobile with all the extras on it. Everything. I said, Carl, where'd you get that car? He said, you ain't going to believe it. I said, I was in Florida in a revival meeting. I said, I just one day walking around, went in souls. I walked to the Oldsmobile dealership, just these new Oldsmobile. I said, this was sitting on the showroom floor. I just got in it and sat down. Held the stern wheel. I said, the man comes and said, let me sell you that car. And said, I got out and said, I said, oh, no, you can't sell me that car. I said, I, I, I can't, can't buy that car. But Carl said, let me give you something. And Carl reached in his pocket and pulled out a gospel track. And showed the man how to be saved and led the man to Christ. man got saved, and many said, Now, I've, I, I've accepted what you offered. said, Now, let me send you that car. Carl said, You can't sell me that car. said, My father just gave it to me. He said, Who is your father? He said, God. He said, Man, you're a preacher or something. said, Yeah, I'm an evangelist. He said, if somebody gave you that car, could they take a tax deduction? He said, yep. Andrew Evangelistic Association. Tax deductible organization. He said, wait a minute. The man came out of the back of the office with a bill of sale. Mark paid and gave Carl that brand new 98 Oldsmobile. Came to Atlanta, Georgia, told me that story. And the next day, I went to Capital Cadillac. Spent the whole day up there. Capital Cadillac in Atlanta, Georgia. Witnessed everybody on the place. Nobody even bought me a coat. My motive might have been wrong. Unpaid debts. Hey, I'll tell you this story. You probably heard it, but I want to hear it again. I had three medical doctors in my church. Dr. Hathcock, Dr. Demansky, Dr. Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell was a general practitioner. I preached one night on soul winning. I said, you medical doctors ought to win souls to Christ. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You let people die and go to hell, you know they're going to die, and you don't even witness to them. You ought to be ashamed. And old Dr. Mitchell came after the service and said, Brother Curtis, I made up my mind while you're preaching. I'm going to witness to my first patient in the morning. I said, Good, Doc. I'll pray for you. The next morning came, and a fellow came in to get a physical examination. Old Doc gave him a physical. He sat on the side of the table, buttoning his shirt up, and Doc went to the back of the office to read his soul winning notes. And I had said, when you want to witness somebody, don't ask them, are they saved? They won't understand that. Ask them, if you die today, do you know you'll go to heaven? The guy just had a physical examination. Dr. Mitchell walked back out, not thinking how it would sound. He cleared his voice. <clears throat> said, i got a question for you. And the guy's buttoning his shirt up. He said, yeah, Doc. He said, what is it? And Doc said, if you die today, do you know you go to heaven? The guy said, Fainted, cold as a cucumber. And old dog got the smell and sauce and brought around. He said, Oh! He said, Tell me it ain't that bad, Doc. I just came in for a physical. Oh! Doc said, You better calm down. You'll have a heart attack. Oh, he said, It's my heart. Oh! 
God said, nothing's wrong with your heart. Cool it, man. You're going to die. You don't, you don't get calm. Nothing's wrong with you. Man. Oh, what is it? And Doc explained that I had told him how to win souls, and you should ask him, man, if you die, do you know you're going to heaven? Doc came to church the next Sunday evening. He said to me, Brother Curtis, you like to got me in bad trouble. I said, what's that, Doc? He said, that, that question. If you die, do you know you'll go to heaven? That question. Oh, I said, no, that's the question to ask, Doc. I've always used that question. He said, not for us doctors. I said, what happened? He told me the guy came in for a physical. He said, I didn't think how it would sound. I just gave him a physical and asked him if he died. Did he know he'd go to heaven? and said he fainted and fell on the floor. He said, it scared me so bad. He said, I thought he was having a heart attack. He said, I was so frightened my chest began to hurt. I thought I was having a heart attack. He said, I was wondering how I was going to explain to his family. He came in for a physical and I scared him to death in the office. I said, Doc, Doc, did he get saved? He said, just like that. Doc's paying his debts. Carl Hatch paying his debts. Throwing tracks in the bathroom. I think that's a wonderful idea. Yeah. You ought to get used to probably go to the airport and walk on and say, Read that while you're waiting. <laughs> they can't get mad and chase you out of there. You can get away before they can get going good. And so I better read what's on the walls in there. We just timid and backward and shy. We're not paying our debts. Folks around us are dying. Go to hell. We're not witnessing to people. I haven't told this story in years. I think I'll tell it. One Friday night, late, my wife had gone to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to visit her kin folks, and uh, she wasn't mad at me or anything. That's another time. She took all the kids with her. I'm at home alone Friday night. It's late. And when the kids are gone and wife's gone, it's so quiet that the quiet gets noisy. Even the, even the kitchen faucet. Sound like Niagara Falls. One of those nights I couldn't go to sleep. You ever try to go to sleep and couldn't go to sleep? I said, now, Curtis, you've got to go to sleep. Now, go to sleep. And my eyes just wide open like springs. I'd pull them to the jump open. And I'm, I'm looking at my watch. It's 1 o'clock. It's... It's getting 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. I said, man, I've got to go to sleep. Finally, it's apparent I can't go to sleep. It, you had one of those times when the harder you try to go to sleep, the wider awake you get. So I said, I may as well do something until I get sleepy. And I remember a man in my church named Hewlin who said to me, if you ever want to go soul winning any hour of the day or the night, call me. Well, it was any hour of the day or the night, so I called Hewlin. He said, Hello. I said, Hewlin, this is a preacher. He said, yeah. So what is it? I said, Hewlin, I'm, I'm, I'm going soul winning. And you told me if I ever wanted to go soul winning, any hour of the night to call you. He said, what time? He said, I said, it's one o'clock. He said, in the morning. I said, in the morning. By this time, he's getting awake. He said, now, preacher, I've never tried to tell you what to do before, and I don't want to tell you now. But I don't think we ought to go soul winning. Not, not now, but the time you get here will be one thirty, two o'clock in the morning time we get to somebody's house. If we knock on somebody's door at 2 o'clock in the morning and ask them if they died or they know they're going to heaven, they'll kill us. And he said, beside that, people put mean dogs in the yards. I said, you know, if you don't want to go, I'll go by myself. Oh, no, if you go, and I'm going with you. Come on, get me. And I went... Under the round behind the house and reached over the house, I got the gasoline can. I keep gasoline for my lawnmower, two gallon gas can. Put it in the back of my car, trunk of my car. I went to get healing. He said, Where are we going? Going to the hospital? I said, Nope, going so one. He said, Somebody in jail called you, want to come get him out of jail? I said, Nope, going so one. I drove across North Druid Hills Road to 85 Expressway and headed north up toward Greenville, South Carolina. He said, We're going out of state. I better call my wife. I said, I'll have you back before sunrise. In a minute, I saw on the right-hand side of the road what I was looking for, a car parked out of gas, a man standing behind it. I put up behind the guy, put my lights up on bright where I could see good, and jumped out of the car and said, say, are you out of gas? He said, I sure am. I said, you won't believe this, but I've been looking for you for about 25, 30 minutes. 
He looked at me. He said, man, you ain't looking for me. He said, I don't know you. You don't know me. I said, I'm looking for a fellow out of gas. Is that you? He said, that's me. I went to the trunk of the car, got out a two-gallon gas can. I said, here's two gallons of gas. That'll get you to the next station. He started to pour it in, had second thoughts, and dropped it and jumped back and said, you pour it in. So I put the gas in the car while he watched. Then he said, I've got it all figured out. So he, he said, you want $10 for that two gallons of gas. You only paid about a dollar for it. You'll do that five or six times a night, you'll make a killing. Well, I hadn't thought of that before he suggested it. I said, no, sir. I said, I'm an old-fashioned Baptist preacher, and I couldn't sleep. And I've, I've been traveling and found folks out of gas and stranded till all night long till the next morning before somebody came on to help them. And I just wanted to get out here on the expressway and, and help people like that tonight till I got sleepy. And I figured if I gave them the gas, they'd let me at least share a few minutes and tell them how to know they're going to heaven. Do you know if you die, you'll go to heaven? He said, no, I don't know that. I said, can I tell you how to know it? He said, yep. He got in the car and sat on his wife on one side, three kids in the back. I leaned in the one of the car, opened the Bible, turned on the dome light, gave the plan of salvation on the side of the expressway, 2 o'clock in the morning, cars going by my coattail blowing in the wind. And I said to the man, wouldn't you like to trust Jesus as your Savior? Yes, I would. I said to his wife, wouldn't you like to trust Jesus? She said, yes, I would. I said to the kids in the back, won't you trust Christ while mom and dad's trusting Christ? I said, yes, we will. Five people trusted Jesus as Savior in that car. They later wrote from California, your state, not to thank me for the gasoline, but to thank me for taking the Bible and showing them how to get saved. In those days, I drove a, I drove a 60 Renault Dolphin. That's a car. Second thoughts, it may not be a car. You didn't get in it, you put it on. And Hewlin weighed about 280 or 90 pounds. And he folded up like a full-bladed pocket knife and got in the passenger side, and I got in my side. The thing hadn't, didn't have enough power to get started. You had to double-clutch it to get it rolling. Bump the clutch, get it rolling first. We started over the highway. And if we drove along, we'd just seen five people saved. Hewlin had never seen that before. And he began to get blessed. Have you ever seen a 260-pound man get blessed? In a 6 or naught dolphin? With all the windows rolled up. He started off by saying, <laughs> and he laughed, scared me. I looked at him. I said, then he laughed again. <laughs> I said, Lord, have mercy. And then he shouted. I had never been in a little car with the windows rolled up with a man shouting. He shouted. I don't mean he said, whoopee. I mean he shouted in my car. He said, and he spit all over my windshield on my car. He balled up both fists and beat my dashboard. Hallelujah! And he had a fit. Now, don't tell nobody I told you this, but I wanted to do what he was doing. I'm driving, he's shouting. And I said, Lord, I never have done that. I said, I'm one led to five people to Christ. Hewlin just watched it. I said, it's not Sunday morning. I mean, I, I said, Whoa! I tried to outshout Hewlin. I spit all over my side of the windshield. Now, when two guys are shouting in a Renault Dolphin with the windows roll up, quickly it fogs the inside of the windows up. You can't see. And I had to rub little holes in the fog to see where I was going. We had a shouting spell about four or five miles long. And I saw a standard oil sign blinking on and off. And I looked at Hewlin and I said, Hewlin, hush. I said, I'm going to turn you and get some more gas. I said, if you shout while I'm getting gas, that man will call the police to us. He'll think I'm hurting you. I said, I said, you think you can hold it and I get some gas? He said, oh. I said, you're not going to shout. He said, look like a hog. 
You ain't going to believe this story. I pulled him around behind the gas pump. She was... The man started out to the car, and about the time he got to my door, he was a... I said, oh, and I drove on out of there. It was the only service station open. I had to go back. I said, you knew like they got me in trouble. I said, you think you can hold it this time? He said, you're not going to shout. I pulled back in behind the pumps. You ain't going to believe it. The man got just about to the car. And I said, oh, drove out again. I made eight passes at that service station. Finally got behind the pumps, and the guy wasn't anxious to help us. First place, he couldn't see inside the car with all the fog on the windows. He came out to my side. I had a little hole up there, and I stuck my face up to the window. Opened the door real quick and threw the can. I said, fit it up and close the door. And the car was vibrating. You know, go, the whole car is shaking. I said, don't you shout. You don't have to leave the gas can. Don't you shout. The man put about three gallons on the ground trying to look through that hole in that fog. <laughs> Finally filled the can up and gave it back to us. And we hit the expressway. Before the sun came up the next morning, we had led 18 people to Christ on that expressway. And Hewlett had shouted so much he had laryngitis he couldn't talk. I took him back to his house. He says, God bless you, preacher. Most fun I ever had in my life. If you ever want to go soul winning again, any hour of the day or the night, call me. And I said, I sure will, you love <laughs> We was paying our debt. Paying our debts. Boy, you didn't win them everywhere. I was on the elevator with Carl Hatch. Just an elevator. The guy threw a track down on the elevator. I said, Carl, you dropped one. He said, leave it there. More folks got on the elevator, big tall building. Finally, the elevator was full of people. You know, elevators are not that big. About eight or ten people, maybe twelve in there. And Carl reached down and picked up that track and said, Somebody dropped something. Sure, he threw it down there a while ago. <laughs> then he started reading it out loud. You know, <laughs> you have to hear him. You don't, you're standing right there. You can't get out. Well, it says here, what you must accept to go to heaven first, you must admit you're a sinner. Romans 3.10, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he said to the guy, you know anything about this? And the guy said, no, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> Another guy said, it said, it's not mine. I don't know anything about that, but he said, I'm a Christian. Carl said, well, why don't you tell us how we didn't become Christians? He said, let me have that thing there. He, he finished reading the track for call and told everybody on the elevator how to get saved. He had never done that in his life. I was in a restaurant, big cafeteria full of people. I'm in the line waiting to go by. Carl gets out of line, goes way on the opposite side of the cafeteria. 200 people between us. He said, Curtis! I said... You with your hand over your face. I'm so embarrassed now. Everybody in the restaurant is looking at me. Wondering why I won't answer the guy. I'm humiliated. I said, yes, what is it? He said, are you saved? Two or three hundred people between us eating lunch. Yelling across the people. Yes, I'm saved. What about tell me how you got saved? I said, well, first you got to know you're a sinner. Romans 3.10. As it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. And I kept going, and people began to lay their forks down. People began to do like this. 
It looked like a church meeting. Nobody, nobody was eating. Everybody, someone was doing this. I never seen anything like it in my life. They thought it was religious service going on. We was paying our debts. Paying our debts. Crazy. The man's crazy. But I think God liked that. He went into a Washington building, a public building up in Washington, D.C. And walking around the country, boys, you think I have a bad accent. You ought to hear him. He's passing out these little tracts. It says, it's got a picture of a map on the front. It says, how to get to heaven from anywhere. And has a plan of salvation inside. He's going through this public building in Washington, passing out these tracts. And somebody got offended. And went right over to the policeman or the guard who was at the gate or the door where you first come in. And said, somebody's passing out religious literature in a public building. That's against the law. It's that man over there. The policeman comes to, to the car. What are you doing? Said so call him call said, I'm giving out some maps. <laughs> said, What kind of maps is it? Said, Well, is this a map tells you how to go to heaven? Well, is that religious material? And he said, Well, I don't know where it is or not. It's just Bible. The guard looked at it and said, Oh, this is religious material. You can't pass that out in here, it's against the law. Carl said, I'm sorry, no, it was against the law. He said, Is it against the law to read in here? The man said, no, it's not against the law to read, but you can't pass that stuff out in here. <laughs> so Carl walked up next to the policeman where the folks are coming through the gate. He said, pardon me, I want to read something to you right quick here. First, you must know your sin. He read the track all the way through the first person. The policeman already said it wasn't against the law to read. Carl wasn't giving nobody. He's reading it, but it come in. Policeman got so nervous, he said, Oh man, just give everybody one up. It won't make no difference. <laughs> Paid his debts. Yeah. I gotta quit. No revival because of uh, unbelief, unconcern, unconfessed sins, uncontrolled lives and unpaid debts. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org.